I'm losing my mic here. Welcome to all of you. I think they're going to, let's see, let's see if I can read this in the dark. Um, hi, thank you all for coming. I'm Chris Boyd, host and managing editor of the radio show Think on KERA, which is produced out of Dallas. You can hear us on public radio stations across Texas at 1 o'clock every weekday. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm delighted to welcome you to this one-on-one conversation with Chief Renee Hall, new chief of police of the city of Dallas. This conversation is supported by Operation Blue Shield. You should know that although sponsors and donors underwrite this event, they play no role in determining the event's content or the panelists or the line of questioning, which is to say, if you're not happy with today, come to me. (laughs) Um, This afternoon's discussion will last uh, close to an hour, including um, some time for audience questions at the end. We will have a microphone in the audience. Since we're capturing this audio for a future Think broadcast, if you have a question, even if you're loud enough for us to hear you in the room, we would ask that you find the person with the microphone or go to the microphone and use that, please. You will want to silence your phones, but feel free to use them to tweet. The hashtag is TribFest17. Chief Yu Renee Hall is the 29th chief of police for the city of Dallas. Her law enforcement career began in Detroit, where she was born and raised. She commanded the largest bureau in the the police department there, with more than two-thirds of the department's employees and a budget of $137 million. Under her leadership, the department experienced a 40-year low in homicides and double-digit reductions in overall violent crime. In Detroit, Chief Hall created community policing and mentor programs that developed and fostered partnerships between officers, community members, and the business. And uh, those programs were recognized for their excellence by the U.S. Department of Justice. Chief Hall has a degree in criminal justice from Grambling State University and two master's degrees, one in security administration, the other in intelligence analysis from the University of Detroit Mercy. She's a graduate of the FBI National Academy and the Major Cities Chiefs Police Executive Leadership Institute and a member of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. She was recently appointed Special Assistant to the President of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Chief Hall has also been honored as a Woman of the Decade by Native Detroiter Magazine. As a Dallasite myself, I can tell you a lot of people are very excited to have Chief Hall on the job, uh, not least because she is the first woman ever to hold that title in Dallas. Chief Hall, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm sure there's never been an easy time to run a police department, Um, but it really does seem challenging now. There are these viral cell phone videos that um, have a lot of people questioning whether they can trust police. There are a lot of good law enforcement officers who don't understand why they are lumped in with the bad apples. Um, how does that tension affect the way officers approach their jobs? I, I think that we have to look at it holistically, that history has created a strenuous relationship between the community uh, and the police, and, and that, has, that was done years ago. Nothing we can do about that, but how we move forward is through transparency. Uh, I tell the officers each and every day when I go by a roll call that no one should be able to tell your story better than you. It's okay to have cell phone video of of the incident, but that's why we want the community to know we wear body cameras uh, so that they understand that there is no secret about what we do in law enforcement. Our goal is to make sure that you know that what we do each and every day is to, one, protect ourselves, but two, equally to protect the citizens. So being transparent in everything that we do uh, is, I think, is the key to building that relationship and letting the community, businesses, the officers alike know that we're working together in this. And if we continue to work together, that we can conquer everything. As the leader of the police department, how do you strike the balance between holding officers accountable and making them feel 100 percent supported? Well, the support, the unwavering support is about doing the job the way the job is designed to be done, following the rules and regulations of our agency, um, and just holding ourselves accountable for what we're supposed to do. So I think that the the biggest part of that is making sure that they understand that if you do the right thing, even when you're, you're attempting to do the right thing and you make a mistake, that there is support in that. There's discipline in that, but there's support. The officers know unequivocally 
that if you break the law, if you violate our rules and regulations, and there's total disrespect for proper procedure in our relationship building and the police department, they understand that there is no support, that I will put the handcuffs on them myself because we have to be able to police us before we can police the community. And in order for us to hold the community accountable, we must first hold ourselves accountable. So just being transparent as a leader of the organization, letting them know that those are my expectations for the department, um, and I think just making them understand that we have a responsibility, and most of the individuals who are on the police department across this country, 95% uh, of officers do the right thing every day for the right reason. There's only a small portion of officers who uh, their actions make the entire uh, police agencies across this country look bad. So they understand, they, I think they ultimately respect uh, that kind of leadership. On the other hand, can you understand the sense that many people in this country have that they can't trust the police in their city to protect and serve them? You know, as I said before, there's his history. Uh, before I left Detroit, we were embarking upon the 50th anniversary of the 1967 riots. Um, there was a time when the police department in the city of Detroit was predominantly white, and the city was predominantly black, and there was a lot of abuse by the police department to the citizens. Um, I could go back to the Holocaust. I could go back to slavery. There have been things that have broke down the relationship between the uh, police department and the community, and we understand that. And even today, we can bring it fast forward into the 21st century and see that there are some actions by police officers uh, as a whole, who, I mean, uh, individually, who have tarnished the badge, so to speak. And we have to be willing to call things as they are. When officers tarnish the badge, we need to deal with those individual individuals. But we also need to remember that they don't represent every single police officer across this country. And in that, I think it's building relationships, getting to know one another, uh, working alongside the community, bringing them into the decision-making pro process, um, our policies and procedures, and just being transparent overall kind of rectifies that. Uh, to ensure that we're making strides to be better than we were in the past. You were born and raised in Detroit, a city that, um, when it's reported on from a distance, looks really, really troubled. And I wonder if you can talk about some of the things that are good in Detroit that the rest of the country overlooks. I think when you see Detroit or you hear about Detroit, all you hear are the crime statistics. We talked about how the city of Detroit has been the murder capital of the world for many years. Um, and if you visit the city of Detroit, and what you understand is those murder, those, those numbers of homicides don't re represent masses of individuals dying. They're a, the result of a groups of individuals who actually know one another um, in nicely packaged geographical locations that are causing crime or committing crime against each other. So overall, your chances of being a victim of crime in the city of Detroit are low if you're not involved in uh, gang activity and criminal activity. But we wouldn't know that. And we wouldn't know that the economic development uh, and the housing initiatives that are taking place in the city of Detroit, uh, we um, have have experienced a, a influx of individuals moving into the downtown area, midtown, and building affordable homes across the city of Detroit. But we're not talking about that because the picture is sexy if we're talking about it's a minority-based uh, city, and if we're talking about the bad, then that is what gets the headlines. What puts any city at greater risk for having more crime than any other city? What are the risk factors? The, the risk factors are the, the community and the police department not being able to communicate. Because I, I say this each and every time I, I have a panel. You read off my resume, and there's a lot of degrees there, and police officers, we're really educated. But we have never been able to solve a crime by ourselves in the history of policing. Uh, since the 
1800s and Sir Robert Peel and the hue and cry, it has always been citizens working alongside of the police department, letting us know what's going on and calling us to get the bad guys. So it puts us at risk when we are divided as a city, when we're divided by race, when we're divided by economics, um, and we refuse to talk to one another uh, rather than work together. So those are the things that put us at risk because crime uh, is just about opportunity, and that can happen anywhere. But we're more subject to experiencing crime when there's a breakdown in communication between the individuals who are in that specific area. The homicide rate fell in Detroit by a lot when you were working there. Um, Solving a murder is one thing. How do you prevent murders when very often they happen in the heat of the moment? Well, it's just like I said before. Homicides happen usually by two people who know one another. They had some kind of relationship, whether it was some gang affiliation or whether it was some uh, narcotics trade that was taking place and went wrong. So what we did was strategically focus on individuals who were affiliated with narcotics groups and which with gangs. And we didn't just go after those individuals. We went after everyone who was affiliated with those individuals. So uh, we had something called ceasefire. And that was putting a stop to all gang activities. So uh, the federal government was on board. So federal prosecutors, along with state prosecutors, um, the state police, our county police, Um, all of our federal agencies, and we strategically built a database that had all uh, the gangs that were identified in the city of Detroit. And what we, uh, we were successful in doing is once these individuals were identified as members of gangs, if they committed any crime, we took those crimes and we charged them federally. With that, there were mandatory minimums. So If you are a gang member and you committed a robbery, well, the federal system took that and you were automatically given five years or 10 years. So it it eliminated the ability for someone to commit a crime and be back on the streets in six months to a year. Um, I know that police don't run uh, the prison system, um, but a lot of people worry about mandatory minimums because when people come out of prison, it's very hard for them to get a job, to return to their community, even if they intend to, as productive members of society because people are sort of frightened of that felon box that they've checked for the rest of their lives. Well, you know, the one thing I don't want us to get away from is that people who need to go to jail need to go to jail. But I think as police officers, as uh, community leaders, as um, business owners, we need to come together as a whole to figure out how we really rehabilitate. Because once someone comes out of prison, we need to make sure that there are jobs, there's housing, there's transportation, and all of those things are available for them, for them to be productive citizens. Uh, You know, our job is to put them away, but we do have the responsibility of reintegrating them back into the community. Because if they come back into the community with nothing, with no housing, no no income, and and not having the dignity of the ability to take care of themselves, they result back to a life of crime. So, you know, we have to do what we need to do to keep all of our residents safe, and that is taking those individuals who are committing violent crime and putting them where they need to be. But once they have served their time, we're also responsible for finding a way for them to be productive citizens. You were born and raised in Detroit. You were a cop on the street. You uh, were in administration for many years. I would imagine that you could find your way around that city blindfolded. Um, I'm curious about your process for getting to know Dallas, which is a city that's almost twice as big and in a very different part of the country. Well, the the process doesn't change. Uh, I got to know the city of Detroit by actually being a part of it, going into neighborhoods, going into stores, uh, meeting community activists as well as elected officials. And that is my same roadmap for the city of Dallas. Um, I have to be a part of the community in order to learn the the community. I need to meet individuals. And as the police chief, I don't get to select who I want uh, to serve. We have to serve the activists in the city as well as we have to serve those individuals who are community uh, leaders who are making changes in the community. We have to uh, deal with white supremacists, Black Lives Matter. Everybody is important as we look to make Dallas a place that's safe and a great place to live, work, and play. So 
I have the challenge to go into the communities and meet everybody, find my way around. As I told you backstage, uh, sometimes I drive around by myself and I get lost on purpose. I do not use my Waze app because that will help me learn my way around. Um, I'm determined to be a Dallasite. I was born and raised in the city of Detroit, but I am committed to the city of Dallas. Uh, my goal is to make this one of the best places to live, work, and play um, and make Dallas uh, the model for law enforcement and community engagement across this country. What do you notice about Dallas coming in as an outsider? Uh, it's big. <laughs> Everything is big in Texas. Um, Dallas is not, no, really no different from other urban cities as you travel the United States. Um, there's some things that brings the city together and then there's some things that divide the city. Uh, one of the things that troubles me in the city of Dallas is that we're divided by race uh, and economics in the city. Uh, my goal is to bring everybody together. We have to work with one another. Um, we, there is no division in unity. So I don't know how we can be united as a city, a state, and, or country if we're divided through uh, freeway lines or, or Mockingbird or Northwest Highway. So that's one of my goals is to, to through community engagement uh, and crime fighting, to unite the city and, and make us all one. Was there something that drew you to Texas specifically? Was it just the right job came up at the right time? I believe law enforcement for me has always been divine. Uh, I didn't choose law enforcement early on in my life. Uh, I always say it chose me. I was, if you had asked me what I wanted to do, I wanted to be a lawyer. That's what I wanted to do. And, and as God would have it, my grandmother used to always say, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plan. <laughs> so <laughs> um, as God would have it, I ended up in graduate school meeting a, uh, the chief of police who is the sheriff now in the city, in the county of Wayne in Detroit. And he was just adamant about me joining the, the police department. He just thought uh, that I brought something, that I would bring something to law enforcement. And he actually predicted my future. He told me, you'd be a lieutenant in seven years. You're so smart. Um, you'll be a police chief. And he actually told me I would be the police chief of Dallas, him and my mom. <laughs> um, but I don't, don't know... Um, that I chose Dallas as much as Dallas was always prepared for me and God was just kind of preparing me for Dallas. Um, but I did all the right things. Um, I made all the right uh, contacts and I think I went through all the processes and I ended up here, which is obviously where I'm supposed to be. The you in your name, you, Renee Hall, is short for you, Leisha. You're named for your father, who was a police officer in Detroit, killed in the line of duty when you were a tiny baby, and the person who committed that murder was never brought to justice. Absolutely. He was never. Um, it's, it's still so many unanswered questions. Um, I think it's shaped and molded how I enforce the law and how I take care of the officers. Anyone who knows me or any interview that you've seen, and just to know the history and talking to the individuals in Detroit is officers are paramount. Um, they're my first priority, and they're that because I feel as the chief, I am responsible for making sure that they go off to work safe and that they return to off-duty roll call the same way that they that they uh, they left. It's a it's a hard thing to hold because you can't be everywhere, um, but it's almost like being a parent. You want to keep them safe from everything. Um, but it's very difficult when you have to allow them to go into uh, the communities and deal with all the things that we have to deal with. But my father not being there, um, it, it took something out of my life. And I wasn't, I really didn't know what I was missing until I got older. So for me, the men and women in this city who entrust the Dallas Police Department to their loved ones, I feel like we're obligated to make sure that they're safe, and that they return home the way they left. To the extent that your childhood was defined by his absence, because you never got to know him, um, I wonder if becoming a police officer was part of your search for who he was and, and how he thought and what his days were like. Probably. Uh, you know, some things are, are still not clear. The only thing that I knew is when I joined the police department, everything I touched I was successful at. I was best shooter in my class. I had never 
held a gun in my life and they put this thing in my hand and, you know, um, I was really good. I've always been expert shot, had no idea where that was coming from. Uh, as I progressed through the police department, taking exams, I always ended up in the top. So I just believe maybe that he was always right alongside of me, uh, making sure that I'm finishing what he started. So, I mean, it's, it's probably a little eerie, but at the time, it's how I feel. So I think of your mother who was truly delighted that smart young Renee was choosing to be a lawyer. How did she take the news that you had decided to become a police officer? Yeah, about that. <laughs> um, she was not happy initially. Um, and I think it was truly out of terror. She always feared that the phone would ring and she would get that same message that she received nearly 28, 29 years ago, because I joined the police department when I was 28. So um, I didn't realize the impact when I told her, but after she explained to me how she felt, um, I understood. But ironically, she supported it. And to this day, she couldn't be happier. She's very, very proud. You surely followed the coverage of the attacks on Dallas police in the summer of 2016. Um, I wonder if there were lessons that came out of that night for police departments everywhere. I think the lessons that came out of uh, that night was just that we have to always make sure that we are uh, as prepared as we can be. Um, I don't want to speak about July 7th, 2016, because Chief Brown did an outstanding job with what he was dealt with at that particular point in time. Uh, but what I want to leave the community with and with officers across this country is that we always have to prepare for the worst and expect the best. Um, and so to this day, we ensure that uh, we cover every base as it relates to the possibilities uh, of, of a protest that goes uh, in a different direction that we planned, uh, strategically making sure that uh, we we have every tactical team and all those things covered. I'm trying not to give out the, the secrets to the sauce, <laughs> um, but we, we just we just want to make we make sure now that we can prepare as much as we can. What's unfortunate about uh, terrorist attacks, urban terrorism, or someone planning to do harm is unless we know the plan, it's hard to counter. And so we just we do the best that we can in training officers and making sure that they have the proper training, the proper equipment, um, and that the community is educated on how we have to react. Because before uh, July 7th, there was this, this, this piece that we did not want to look militaristic to our community because we want to build those relationships. But I think by talking and seeing what happened on July 7th, we understand that we, we're not in combat with the community, but we are fighting some people and some entities out there that want to do harm to police so that we have to protect ourselves in order to be able to protect the community. So I think that's what we learned. So you talked about the importance of equipment. You said you don't want to look militaristic. Where do you stand on the question of whether police departments, urban police departments, should have military-grade equipment, things like tanks and bombs and things that once were associated only with warfare? I think what we have to do is we have to... Do we, do we need those things? We do. I think there's a time and a place that we use them. I don't think that it's appropriate to bring out a tank when, when a group wants to protest a cause. I think that the, the time to bring out a tank is when we have a, a vehicle, like in 2015, that pulled up in front of headquarters and began shooting, and the officers needed to be able to get close enough to that vehicle in order to uh, uh, eliminate the threat. So do I believe we should have military-type equipment I think it's necessary because what we have to be real honest about and have real conversations is uh, police departments are under attack the same way our country is under attack from a terroristic standpoint. There are people who do not like the police um, and there are, there are terrorists 
who utilize attacking the police to make a, a statement as much as they do, um, whether it's uh, airports, schools, and all those things. So should we be equipped? Absolutely, but at the appropriate time and dealing with the necessary entity. Is it for our community and to interact with our community on every given given day? Absolutely not. It's, it's no different than water hoses in, in the 1960s. Uh, we know what we need, but there's an appropriate time to use that, that artillery. I'm sure that our reputation precedes us in Texas. We are very protective of our Second Amendment rights. We can carry swords now. Um, I wonder if this makes uh, the job of police officers easier or more difficult, or if it doesn't have an effect on, on how police officers go about their work. You know, I am just adamant that guns are not necessarily the problem. People are the problem. And I think until we can change the mindset of people, because it's the people with the guns who choose to, uh, to shoot up a school or an individual who chooses to, to come to a police agency and fire upon law enforcement officers. So I think that we need to focus on what is that thing in that person. Some of it is mental health challenges, um, and we need to go after those things. Um, the, 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 the Second Amendment is way too political, and I am determined I am not a political police chief, and I will not be. Uh, I want to deal with the issues that keep us from uniting as a police department and as a community and just focus on that. Chief, lots of people talk about the importance of training as a tool for de-escalation of conflict between police and civilians. Um, given that police officers are human beings, what kind of training works to keep someone from panicking in a particular moment, from striking out in anger in a particular moment? How does training make that possible? Well, I mean, and it starts in our academies. Uh, we have de-escalation training. Uh, but also, before you get to training, just knowing the officers themselves. Something that I'm pushing down uh, through the executives in the police department, supervisors, is to pay attention to the officers. You know, one of the things I do in my office is go by and ask people, you know, how, how are you? How are the kids? How's the family? Um, we have to be whole before we do the job. And oftentimes, those early warning signs of with, with police officers or the community before uh, something happens or before they go on the street. We need to make sure that we're examining them uh, before we train them to go on the street. They need to, to, we need to understand that you're a little different today. You came in a little snappier than you were uh, yesterday. Is there something wrong? Pulling that individual to the side to see, are you fit today to go onto the street? So it's that portion along with the de-escalation and the cultural diversity training. Um, because we need to understand the community before we can actually police the community. One of the things I say about African-Americans is um, we talk really, really loud. Um, a lot of people think we're arguing when you see two black people talking. But culturally, we, that's how we were raised. In the South, when your parents were calling you to come in, they stood on the porch and yelled extremely loud, and people talk loud. Um, is that a bad thing or a good thing? It's a thing thing. And so there are things we need to understand about who we're dealing with so then we know how uh, to train our officers and how to deal with them. So those are the things that we're examining holistically. And we can take every culture and every race and identify things that you know, may not seem normal to me, but it's normal to that particular culture. So we're examining everything uh, so that we're able to give the proper response when needed and make sure that, that we're not quick to react, that we're communicating before we're reacting. There have been a number of really interesting and, frankly, deeply demoralizing studies that show that the majority of Americans, including African Americans, carry around an implicit bias against people of color. And this includes people who actively don't want to be racist and don't think of themselves as, as white supremacists. What do you do about implicit bias um, among your officers, because that's who you're in charge of, um, if they would honestly say to themselves, I don't think I carry any racial bias? Well, one of the things that's in the academy is the implicit bias training. And what is really ironic about that that I enjoy is there's this test that they're given, and they're supposed to answer a series of questions. 
And before the end of the series, you find yourself leaning toward one side. And it's just what it says. It's implicit. We usually don't even identify or know that we have these biases um, because we've been socialized with them. So I think the first piece is to identify that they exist and the officers get a chance to see what theirs are. And then we're able to move to training them on how uh, to, to move away from that. So you have to name it. You have, you, have to, you have to call it as you see it. And so identifying it is what we're doing in the police department and then dealing with it and figuring out, is this something that's implicit or is this, is, is this who you are and how you feel? I can tell you under my leadership, there is no, no room for anyone who discriminates against anyone, uh, race, gender, color, religion. Um, we can't as an entity discriminate. Our jobs call for us to, to deal with everybody. And we will do that respectfully, honor, honorably, um, and with the highest level of integrity. You come into the Dallas Police Department at a time when about 25% of the force is black. That's commensurate with the population of the city. There are about twice as many Latinos in the city of Dallas as Latino officers, and a majority of Dallas police officers are white in a city that is no longer majority white. How much does that matter that those proportions are skewed within the department as compared with the general population? I think they matter. Uh, as we look at the 21st century policing, we know that what makes a, a city uh, functional and uh, you know just able to engage is that the police department reflects the actual community. Um, but what's bigger as we move to that, because that is my goal, is to engage the Hispanic population to ensure um, that they want to be a part. We, are, we have a noble profession. Law enforcement is, is one of the most exciting things I've ever done. And I'd like to know in a city that is 42% uh, Latino or Hispanic, what are we doing wrong that we're not attracting them to the police department? So it's important, but more importantly, is how the white, black, and Hispanic and Asian population that we have on the police department treat the citizens in the city of Dallas. Um, you know, we, we can engage to bring uh, Hispanics on, but until they're actually comfortable to jo come and join the police department, we have to make sure that we're treating everybody equally, fairly, um, and without any bias. Do prospective recruits of color tell you that they get pushback from their communities when they say, hey, I'd love to be a police officer? Well, you know, I, I, I'm really new to Dallas, so I can't answer that question if there's pushback. But I can only say from my experience uh, as, as an African-American, when I wanted to join the police department, not necessarily from my mom, but other people, because of the relationships between law enforcement and the community that we talked about earlier that stem all the way back, people wonder, why are you joining this organization that has kept us oppressed for so long? But I think the only way that you change an organization is you have to be a part of it. Let's talk about the gender disparity. There are a lot more male officers in pretty much every police department in the country. What keeps women from seeking law enforcement careers? They don't see themselves in the organization. I mean, I said this, and I think they aired it 20 times on the nightly news yesterday. Um, but no one wants to be a part of an organization that they don't see themselves. If you look at an organizational chart in law enforcement and you see all white males um, as from the chief on down through the entire executive rank, and you're a, a minority woman with education, you may not plan to be a police officer your entire career. You aspire to be at the top of the organization. But are you willing to go through the scrutiny to get to the top of the organization? And that's the problem. Uh, women and minorities have not over the years seen themselves in positions within the police department. And so that is why the numbers are so small, uh, if they exist at all. But I think it's changing. I can tell you that you can look the next couple years, Dallas will be representative of the community. 50% men, 50% women. At least that's my goal. Dallas now has a woman as police chief, as sheriff, and as district attorney. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that in itself uh, allows young women, we actually got a chance to meet uh, some students from local high schools and uh, middle schools throughout Dallas when we did a panel discussion uh, last Saturday. 
And ironically, they were so excited because it made them feel like they could reach these same goals. Before that, they admitted that they didn't think that it was possible. So, so having three women in the highest ranking positions of law enforcement throughout uh, the city and the county of Dallas um, is important. And I think it, says, it speaks volumes for what Dallas is going to become and the state of Texas as a whole. I know that you've been involved in administering mentoring programs. I wonder if there are people that you remember from early in your career um, who really just showed you what it meant to be a police officer. Yeah, I can, I can truly say uh, the sheriff, who was the chief at the time, um, just watching him, his leadership. Uh, chief Craig, who is, you know, recently my, my boss, uh, he, they just, they treated the profession as if it were the best thing in the world to do. They made you feel like if you were a part of this organization, you were a part of something that was so big and so great um, that you were able to make a difference in not only in the city of Detroit, but uh, in law enforcement as a whole. Uh, and there were others along the way. There was Claudia Barton Jackson. She was um, African-American deputy chief who was very strong. Uh, first woman to work narcotics, uh, to command a narcotics bureau. Uh, just, you know, always stood tall, uh, able to do any job that a man could do. So these are individuals who... Uh, I looked up to and said, you know, this is this is where I'm supposed to be and I'm going to make the best of it. So I'm, I'm praying that that women, minorities uh, will see that this is still a noble profession, that we are changing the way law enforcement has acted over uh, many number of years and that we are moving to a place where law enforcement and community are one because they always have been. And in order for us to be successful, they always will be. What should parents tell their young adult sons in particular about any encounter they have with police officers? This is very unfortunate um, because the message is different for minorities uh, than, than it is for anyone else. And that is when you encounter the police. And, and let, me, let me start by saying and, you know, I'm, I'm one who has a real conversation. When we look at crime throughout our communities, crime is exhibit more in minority communities. And so when you interact with a black male, five, nine to six feet, 180 to 200 pounds, uh, dark complected, light complected, dreadlocks, small fro, that is your ideal of what a criminal looks like. So unfortunately, if you're a black male, 5'9 to 6 feet, 180 to 200 pounds, which is pretty much everybody, um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is, um, you're likely to encounter the police. And when you do, you have to ensure that you are 10 and 2. We talk about this all the time. Keep your hands on the wheel and you cooperate. And even if you encounter someone who is disrespectful, and uh, who is not operating in a, in a space that allows you uh, to be able to express yourself, you need to survive the traffic stop. And you make the complaint at a later date. That's truly, truly, truly unfortunate that that's what minorities have to teach their young African-American, Latino children, male children, but they do. And what my goal is in this role is to change that dynamic. No one should have to teach their child to survive a traffic stop. That, I mean, you know, this, that's why community engagement is so important. It's important for us as law enforcement to be in the community. So we're just not looking for a black male that's five nine to six feet. We're looking for Jim or Robert because we already know everyone in the neighborhood and we have a relationship. So we know that this black male is not who we're looking for. We know him. We play basketball with him. We have a youth group um, with these individuals and we know who we're looking for. And we're not dragnetting um, to stop every Latino or uh, black male in a community. So we are charged with the responsibility to engage our community, to get to know them, to make sure that we are not treating them 
any differently than we would treat anybody else. And that's my goal. That's my prayer. And I'm working each and every day to make sure that we are better as a police agency so we can be better with our community and we can be better as a city of Dallas. What's the difference between community engagement programs that look good on paper and the ones that actually work? Action. You know, you can write anything down. You can talk about anything. Um, and I'm a woman of faith, so I'll tell you, faith without works is dead. So if you don't put any action behind the community programs that you put in place, if we don't actually come to the table, talk about the things that are, that are uh, plaguing our area and work together to solve them each and every day, they're just pieces of community, I mean, community programs that are listed on a piece of paper. Um, cities and police departments all over the country are wrestling with how much to focus on drug possession as a crime. Uh, a cite and release policy for small amounts of marijuana possession um, takes effect October 1st in Dallas, which is to say people with four ounces or less or less than four ounces of marijuana will get a, a court date and a ticket, but they won't be taken to jail. Um, I understand that your job is to enforce the law as it's written, but I'm, I'm curious about how you think a change like this will affect the way that Dallas police interact with the public? I think, well, right now that October 1st date is not accurate. We are still working on some things to try and figure out uh, what is needed from the police department as well as the county and, and, and everything in order to, to enact this. Um, we're responsible for enforcing the law. So whatever the law is, we're going to enforce it. Uh, there is talk that Dallas County residents will be treated different from Denton County or, you know, the other counties. However, wherever the law tells us that we go, we have to enforce it. And that's what we're going to do. Um, you know, this is a very political piece <laughs> for me. So I'm just going to be honest and say that if it's written that cite and release is the law, then that's what Dallas Police Department will do, will cite and release for small amounts of marijuana. In general, is it a good use of police resources to, um, to do more than cite and release for small amounts of drugs? I think what we have to do is focus on the crimes as a whole we, we, and, and what is causing the breakdown in our cities. I don't want to tell, I don't want to sit here and tell you that marijuana is any less important than a homicide or heroin uh, because marijuana has the capabilities uh, of, of, of being K2 if someone's producing it that way. So I just don't want to, to, to sit here and tell you that any one crime is any greater than the other. I think we have to look at what is causing our, our communities to uh be torn down and go after those particular crimes, whatever they are. Um, what are the best ways to deal with crimes like prostitution in which someone selling sex is breaking the law but may simultaneously be a victim of trafficking? Well, you know, that's a, that's a totally different situation. We really have to make sure that we're going after those individuals because at that point, that individual is not willingly participating in, in, in selling their bodies for sex. They're being forced through coercion or uh, uh, enslavement or whatever that is. So tra sex trafficking is one of the things that is really plaguing uh, across the, the country um, and is very uh, challenging for us based on you know, putting resources in that, in that space to find out exactly where these organizations are. So we're looking at grants in order for, to fund us, um, give us the opportunity to focus more on that because that is what's plaguing our communities. And it's new. It's something that um, has, uh, has surfaced in the last few years and um, it has really uh, taken a toll on our communities, our young girls um, and women in the community. So we're, we're focusing on it. We're not where we want to be, but we are working to get to where we need to be. When you find an officer who is weak or corrupt for whatever reason, suspected of being those things, what's the best way to deal with that? How often can an officer with real problems be trained and become an effective officer, and how often should that person just be eliminated from the department? If you're a criminal, you should not be a part of the, the Dallas Police Department, and you will not be a part of the Dallas Police Department. 
again, if you if it's in a, a, a judgment call where you were in every way trying to do the right thing, I'll give you an example. Um, it is illegal for us to, against the rules, for you to use your prep radio um, to hit someone in the head, causing great bodily injury or death. But if you are fighting with a suspect and you fear that your life is about to be taken, you pick up that prep radio and hit that individual in the head, I support you. I support you because you, were, you did the wrong thing for the right reason. But if you are a criminal, there is no retraining. There is no, no place for criminality in the police department. The same way there is no room for criminality in our communities. If we're going to police the community, we have to police ourselves. I'd love to take a couple of questions from our audience. Um, we have the microphones here, and I see people jumping up to ask questions. Um, go ahead, please. Um, you've talked about citizens and being a part of the community. The Citizens Review Board for Police in Dallas right now is kind of toothless. Um, you've talked about being willing to make changes to that. Can you talk broadly about what you think a Citizens Review Board should be and how it should interact with the police department? I'm glad you brought that up because I just met with the chairperson um, because it came to my attention that it, and, and it, like I said, I've been here two weeks, so um, it came to my attention that it was, uh, it didn't have uh, the teeth that it needed and it just, they didn't feel like they were um, being used the way they should be. A little bit of history in Detroit, We've had a community, a civilian oversight board since the 1970s, and I think that they're phenomenal. I think that, again, with transparency, they al it allows the board selected by the community uh, and, and elected officials to be the eyes and ears over the police department, to, to, to provide oversight in policy, procedure, uh, judgments on use of force and shootings and all of those things. So I think they're have tremendous value, and I'm working to see how we, where they are right now. Um, I just got a overview from the chairperson of actually what they're responsible for. I do believe that uh, citizens should be able to go to the board directly to make complaints, um, because when they're fostered through the police department, uh, there's a question, is that, uh, uh, are they getting all of them? So I am, I am huge, I'm a huge proponent of making sure that the community is aware of everything that we do. There are no secrets for me. Uh, we cannot operate in secrecy and effectively police this community. So I'm doing everything that I can do to review that process and to make sure that the what's in place is what we need. And what do you want to see? As a community individual, what do you want to see the board be able to do? Because I can promise you, if you want to see it, I'm open to it. On this side? Hi, um, I recently interned with a social justice nonprofit in South Dallas, and so we worked within the um, realm of property law um, in South and West Dallas in those communities, and then with also the police force. So there's a lot of racial reconciliation that needs to occur. Um, I was just wondering your take on whether involving the third sector, particularly nonprofits um, that are social justice oriented, is effective, and what kind of posture needs to be taken when entering into those dual spaces. Well, I think, you know, that there's so much value to you being in that space um, and us working together. I don't think there's really any duality. I think all of us are working for the same purpose, and that is to unite the city of Dallas. So working in that space is what we need, and however we get to, the, to that resolve, uh, I'm open for. So I would love to sit down and talk to you, meet with you, and see how the Dallas Police Department can partner um, with you and what we could do more to add to that. Thank you. By the way, Chief Hall has a plane to catch, so we can take uh, one more question. Yes. Okay. Um, Dallas, as you know, has single-member districts and a city manager, and as someone who's lived their whole life in Dallas, it seems a fairly complex governance structure for those who try to serve the city to work under. I'm curious if you have any strategies as to how you're going to manage up in that environment. Well, um... I, that's a hard question because I just got here, so I'm learning that, that process. Uh, what I can tell you is I'll look into how, what that actually looks like and see what uh, I can do, if anything, um, because you know govern, you govern down, not necessarily up. 
But if I have any influence and can help you in any way, I promise that I will. Chief Hall, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, there's one, there's one, one person. One more. Oh, come back. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take. She'll I'll take. take. She's got time. Um, my question is short. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm Juan Segovia from Texas Wesleyan University in Fort Worth, Texas. And um, uh, what is your advice to other police departments around the nation um, to bring uh, uh, let me rephrase that, sorry. What's your advice for other uh, police departments around the, around the country that would help bring down uh, violent uh, traffic stops? Like, I, th- I think the, the yeah, I understand your question. Okay. You know, what, what advice do I have for other agencies to ensure that they are uh, on par with the city of Dallas in making sure that those traffic stops don't end in violence? Yes, ma'am. And, and, and it goes back to my 21st century uh, beliefs is that, one, we need to, to train our officers, uh, build relationships in our community, and that our police departments need to be reflective of the community. Because when you have 42% Hispanic uh, population in the city of Dallas and a, four, and a 42 or comparable 38%, the chances of Latino or Hispanic individuals running into each other is greater. And there's a cultural understanding. There is a, a dynamic that takes place where I, my example of us talking loud. I'm not arguing. I just I talk loud. Let me lower my voice just a little bit. So um, just for, for police agencies across the country to follow the 21st century model. And if whenever you're not where you want to be or need to be from that standpoint, making sure that you're training everybody to respect the rights of others even when you commit a crime, you're still a human being and you deserve a certain level of respect. So just making sure that that is fostered through all, all uh, law enforcement agencies uh, and making sure that they, we're holding them to that standard and, and being, holding them accountable by making sure that we have body cameras and videos and we're act- actively reviewing that video so that we as supervisors, I'm sorry, I keep hitting this, this thing, as we as supervisors know what our officers are doing every day and holding them accountable for that. Chief Renee Hall, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Audience, you're all invited. You may know this to a special courtyard reception at the AT&T Conference Center. Um, you can recap the day's sessions. You can uh, meet your fellow festival goers. You'll find hors d'oeuvres there and a cash bar. So uh, that's everything you need to know. Thanks very much for coming to Trim Fest this year. <laughs>